the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome everyone to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya. This is a really interesting episode today. Uh, Subscribe, please, so you can hear all of our interesting episodes. We try to deliver really good stuff every single day. Today is no different. Shane Hazel. Maybe you've heard of him. He served in the Marine Corps after 9-11, was drawn to the Marines because of 9-11. And that may have been more than just a turning point in his trajectory of his life. It may have been a turning point in the way he thinks about America, the world, politics, all of it, you name it. He has got some interesting things to say. He's big into Bitcoin. And for the first time, he makes it understandable for me. And I hope for you too. There's a lot to chew on with Shane Hazel. This will not be the last time we have him on, but it certainly will, I think, whet your appetite for more discussion with him. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity. With your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Shane, welcome. I said in the intro that the first time I think I was exposed to you was on the Kennedy show on uh, Fox Business Network. Kennedy's a good friend of mine, and so I watch her all the time. And I was very interested in you because you seem to be a libertarian that is like hardcore libertarian. And I didn't realize until I heard you speak that there there are variations of libertarians, just like there are shades of red and blue. How would you describe your version of libertarianism? I, I think if somebody described it as right of Attila the Hun at one point. And <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's I, – I, we, we just really believe that any time you're using force and coercion – uh, you're you're not doing it right, right? There's a, there's a better way. There's a, a there's a simpler way to do things. And uh, when when you get into politics, a lot of times you're dealing with the state, right? And so anytime you're dealing with the state, the state is nothing but force and coercion. So well, I, I, stop right there because I want to get into this how force and coercion. So I'm guessing that you think, as you said, you're dealing with the state. There's force mm-hmm. and coercion. Where are we seeing force and coercion in our lives right now that maybe we don't even think about as force and coercion? Well, a lot of people, I think, you know, think of, you know, just your your daily, uh, you know, taxes, something that you have to have for a society, you know, a uh, what they talk about is a, a healthy society. The problem with 
the that idea is it, it, it gives the monopoly of force to a group of people who are notoriously considered by most Americans to be liars, cheats, steal and murderers. Right. And so it, you've got a bunch of, you know, psychopathic megalomaniacs uh, for another you know way to put this right is you've got a bunch of megalomaniacs who will use force and coercion to to, I guess, get what they need out of you to survive. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, there's, we as libertarians, we just think there's a, a much better, easier way to do all of this where, you know, 99% of us on earth go throughout our day uh, without murdering people, without raping people, without coercing people. Like we just, we just have interactions. It's just very natural for us. Hey, you need some bread? Great. I got some dollars. Let's, let's trade. Um, and that is not how the government operates. And it's, you know, there's, there's a, changing system and a paradigm coming but that's that's kind of how we see it is if there's an old saying in, in our groups and it makes it sound simple and i know it's not as easy as it sounds nor are we promising uh any type of you know utopia um it is that good ideas don't require force good ideas just naturally happen and and so if if you know we need to build a road or if we need to come up with an education solution if we need to uh, privately fund security solutions. We can do all these kind of things, and, and we can actually do them without that third party uh, that is the government, and more so what I think a lot of people are seeing today is the banks um, that have really kind of become the the bad guys of you know the this infection that's you know it, it pervades every transaction we have uh, in, in America and, and and actually around the world if you're on the the, the world reserve currency. Well, okay. So let's start. You ran for governor of Georgia. I did. Had you won, how would you, would you just not collect taxes? What would you have done? So what you what the goal of an executive is in a pragmatic sense, right, is to now start to do the one thing that government was supposed to be set up for in the first place, and that's protect rights. Mm -hmm. you, you know, in, in America, we were supposed to have this constitutional republic um, that was, you know, in, in their first adoption, you know, as the federalists versus the anti-federalists, the, the anti-federalists were actually prophets and they were right. They were saying, if we do this, you're going to centralize government in in this way that gives too much power uh, to too many people that are into banks, that are into uh, commercial uh, corporations, that are into politics. And they said, hey, you know, the first thing we have to do is we have to pass this you know bill of rights in order for the adoption to occur. And so they did. So the, the protection of rights is first and foremost, right, is, hey, Negative rights don't cost anybody anything at the end of the day. Um, you can't take away negative rights. Positive rights are just another you know, form of slavery. So if you can enslave somebody through force and coercion to provide a handout, whatever it is, or redistribution to somebody else for whatever it is, that's not really what the government will set up to do. Um, You're calling that a positive right? Yeah. Any time that you take money from somebody and redistribute it to some other person or winners and losers uh, by any other means, that is that is a positive right. You don't have the right to force somebody to pay for your education. You don't have the right to force somebody to pay for your security. You don't have the right to pay, have somebody pay for, you know, fire protection. Like well, well, let's stop at security real quick, okay. because I, I would argue that in addition to protecting rights, it seems to me the government's main job is to keep its people safe. You disagree with that? This is to keep them free. And that's, I, I think we get really caught up on this a lot of times in America. The, the narrative's been changed. And, 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 you know, it's been changed to the point where 
we think safety is the bottom line. But the thing is, is atrocities can be done in the name of safety. If they want to lock everybody down in America and then make sure that everybody's safe by telling them they have to get a shot to keep their business, like those are things that are quote unquote safe by a subjective manner. So mm. really it is, it, it's, it's not so much safe. It is free and, and a free people will be a safer people uh, to, to begin with. It's just, it, it, it's just, you know, human nature. Well, okay. So what about borders then? How do we, you know, if, if we have agreed that we are a collection of States and we yeah. have a country and we've got borders um, that's, that to me is part of public safety is, is, is keeping, protecting people from outside forces as well. How do you see that fitting into your term model? Yeah. Well, let, let's first look at the, the model that we have now. Borders are an absolute joke in America. And we have the biggest government we've ever had. I mean, literally, we're spending trillions of dollars every year now just to keep this thing floating. So obviously, that can't be the answer. Uh, the answer is lies in private property. Um, you know, the, the tragedy of the commons is an argument that is, you know, is as old as America. Uh, and so when we look at any time a central body that controls the monopoly on violence has a, you know, a, a quote unquote, a power to say this is our area and we're in charge of this and we're, we're charged with protecting it, what happens? There's no responsibility. There's no accountability. There's there's none of that. But when we start to really uh, decentralize down to the individual, what you're looking at is more or less a property rights issue. So if you as a homeowner or as somebody that has uh, property, you can say who can and cannot be there, who can traverse through your property, who can't traverse through your property. And that's really the solution at the end of the day. Is it going to be an overnight success? No, but if you have security in place that is privatized and you have contracts in place that are you know welcome and agreed to through you know through acceptance instead of coercion you actually have somebody at the end of the day who can protect your private property and is contracted to do so through consent which is a much more powerful form of of making sure that boundary lines are respected versus you know what we've got now, which just seems like a free for all uh, on the southern border. Well, if there are no property holders on certain parts of the border, and then that area is open. I, I mean, there are certain parts of the southern border. I would argue even the northern border that are not necessarily inhabitable, that don't necessarily have property owners on them. What about those spaces? Who who protects those spaces from? any kind of foreign interference. Yeah, again, it's there's going to be private property. Somebody owns that area, right? And, and most of the time, um, you know, it's what this what the state has done, especially the the United States, and taking more and more land through, uh, you know, the the, the BLM especially. Uh, if you look west of the Mississippi, I think they've taken about eighty five percent of the land out there and claimed it as federal land. Um, now that's that that area is obviously unprotected. So if you juxtapose that with, hey, this is actually private land where somebody owns it and can either monitor or track it or um, make sure that you know they've got a security force out there that will protect their land, then you you've got a, a much more reasonable chance to suspect. Uh, that that at the end of the day, you're going to have uh, a, a real recognition of property rights. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. 
we have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That is, that's a really interesting take. And like you said, that certainly couldn't change overnight. Tell me about your run for governor in Georgia and how you stood against the other candidates and what kind of support you enjoyed or didn't to to the extent that you didn't get elected. But what was, what was that experience like for you and, and, and the principles on which you stand? Yeah. So it's actually my third run for office. I ran for U.S. House in 2018. I ran for U.S. Senate down here in 2020. Um, The first time I I came from the Republican field, uh, you know, first and foremost, like I was a Marine, uh, you know, Marine Special Operations vet uh, that ran off after 9-11 to to go and, and fight for, you know, what I thought was freedom in America and, and, you know, the red, white and blue. So, you know, kind of understand that like that was my progression from Republican into Libertarian as I found out what the state wasn't and what the state was. Uh, and then I found out that the Republicans and Democrats, you know, are pretty much the same. And I know I don't know, you know, your listener group, if that offends them or not. But I think it's becoming more apparent is Republicans are just controlled opposition at this point, for the most part. Um, so as a libertarian running against, you know, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams down here in Georgia, um, we don't have the, uh, I guess, the luxury of having a banking cabal behind us. So when you look at what <clears throat> and who gets funded, excuse me, uh, you're, you're seeing, <clears throat> boy, excuse me, real quick. You're all right. Take a glass of water or whatever you need. I know that you're recovering from yeah. some awful bug. Some so bug. anyway, no worries. Go ahead, Shane. Yeah. So at the end of the day, when you look at people who will take votes, for people that are putting in place these giant policies, um, they're going to get money from the people who are closest to the banks. So Republicans and Democrats who will further, you know, a global agenda, who will further things like CBDCs, who will further, you know, the this idea of, uh, you know, global climate change as caused by man, whatever it is that they need to push united, you know, universal health care. Whoever's going to push for a more centralized, bigger state is going to get the money. And so as, as libertarians, you don't enjoy the luxury of having big donors because those big there's no big donors that are trying to decentralize because those people aren't closest to the printing machine. So um, <clears throat> what you get is this really fiery brand of people that are standing in the face of gigantic odds saying no more. You know, this this is where we have to draw the line. And, you know, it's it's interesting because we were just coming off of COVID and everything else. Um, Brian Kemp was no different than, you know, most other uh, governors, you know, that locked everybody down. Um, and, you know, it was one of those moments that was seared into my brain at the time. I was like, you know, th- we're not coming back from this. This is this is something that changes the very fabric of this nation. And so I decided at the time I was running against David Perdue. 
um, and John Ossoff down here in the Senate. I was like, this is the next fight. Um, and to, to make that fight, to have a moment on stage with Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams to, you know, have that debate and ask if there was anything that he was sorry about, you know, closing down, you know, 10 million people's lives and to, you know, suggest that this vaccine should be, you know, widely imposed without any research to have crushed mom and pop organizations that will, you know, will never come back and to have him, you know, kind of bumble through the answer like, hey, you know, is that a question? And uh, yeah, obviously it was a, it's a question. Um the hubris to display that to the you know the people of Georgia and to anybody else that was watching for him to say, you know, we we did what we had to do, and I'm basically I can't say I'm sorry for any of it, and it it was just that moment that I think you know you, you wait for as a libertarian to have just an outstanding debate session with you know these you know people that I, I honestly at this point I just kind of consider them children. Uh, they, they're not you know they're not dealing with the matter of fact people that are, you know, that make up their constituency, they're dealing with the donors and they're dealing with, you know, the ultra connected plutocracy. It's really depressing. And I can't say I disagree with you on that. I mean, I, I see a lot of children in government, a, a lot of children, and they don't take on the, the actual issues. They take on the easy issues first. And then whenever a big issue, an important issue, a complicated issue comes up, they say, we need a whole of government approach. And in that way, they just kick the can down the road and, and things don't get done. When we come back from this quick break, Shane, I want to ask you about that moment of 9-11 and you saying, I'm going to go how I'm going to go defend. I'm going to go join the fight. And, and how then what you saw from there that you know, created this evolution of your thinking. I'm fascinated by this more with Shane Hazel right after this. You know, when you run into someone, they say, oh, wow, you look tired. And you're thinking, I'm not tired. Sometimes it's just a matter of your skincare. And I want to share with you my secret. It's called Genucel, G-E-N-U-C-E-L. It's an antioxidant-based skincare program that is made and manufactured right here in the USA. Formulated by a pharmacist with quality ingredients, their products are sure to smooth out fine lines and wrinkles and prevent new ones from coming. And I am swearing by this stuff. One of my favorites is their deep firming serum with stem cell technology. Just a couple of drops. It goes a long way. And once you put it on a nice clean face, your skin just feels taut and toned and fresh. Uh, I use it after the deep sea cleanser, which I'm a big fan of. It's soap free and it feels fantastic. Right now you can save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package just in time for the warm spring weather. It features Genucel's ultra retinol that contains a powerful retinol alternative safe on your skin in the summer sun and Genucel's dark spot corrector to reduce the appearance of dark marks and sunspots from those great summer days that you love spending outside, but you just don't like the side effects. Plus, you'll still get Genucel's classic under-eye bags therapy. This stuff is magic for those annoying under-eye bags and puffiness. And with the immediate effects, you'll see results in as little as 12 hours guaranteed or you get your money back. How about that? Don't wait. Visit Genucel.com slash Michelle to save over 70% off their most popular package. Plus, every order subscription includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials. That's two free gifts plus free concierge shipping for a limited time. So go to genucel.com slash Michelle. Again, it's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com 
slash Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. Get there now. Shane, 9-11 is seared into my mind um, as much as anybody's. I, I think the people of New York probably have a much different experience than any of us who were not right there. But it changed me dramatically. I want to know where you were when it was going on. Yeah, I was uh, I was working my overnight job, put myself through college um, at Home Depot, and so I was stocking shelves. And we'd heard that a plane had hit, you know, somewhere in the early morning. Um, and I was thinking, you know, it was probably a Cessna or you know something. Yeah. You know, just I, I didn't know, and you know, kept stocking shelves. And then I heard the report that uh, a second plane had hit, and I was like, well, at this point, you know, is it is it a, real prop plane or is this a jet airliner? And I, I think in the back of my mind, I knew I was like, we're under attack. Um, <clears throat> I took the the rest of the afternoon off. We, we, we kind of went and got what's called lunch at, you know, breakfast time. And, uh, my crew was like, yeah, this is, uh, this is going to change everything. So a couple days later, uh, I was in the Marine Corps recruiting office and, you know, I was 21 years old. I was about to go into my last year of college. And hey, hang said, on. What, what were you studying and where? I was out at West Georgia University, and I was studying political science uh, and international affairs. So you did have sort of a mind for for this whole political landscape to begin with. Yeah, it, it was something that always intrigued me. Um, I grew up with uh, Neil Bortz down here in Atlanta, so you know, somewhat of a libertarian mind for that matter. Um, and once it happened, uh, I, you know, with I, like I said, within days, I was in the recruiting office. A month later, November. Uh, 2001, I was in Recruit Depot, uh, Paris Island and going through training and I, I, I excelled as a Marine. Like it was one of those things I was, uh, you know, put in the guide position from day one, uh, went over to uh, special forces, uh, which at the time was what was called force reconnaissance. And so I got into the teams over there. We did the initial invasion in 2003, opened my eyes to some things, but it was over very quickly for us. We, we got turned around within a few months. And my platoon uh, was put back out on what's called a Marine Expeditionary Unit after a small workup. So we were we were only in country for about three months the first time. Um, the second time we went back, we were there for about a year. And that was 2004, uh, 2005 time period. So we went through the Battle of Najaf. We went through the Battle of Fallujah Part II. Um, and right around the December mark for Fallujah uh, Part Two, there, we went back to the base, which was called the Mech, and on my bed, um, one of my buddies had said, hey, you got to read this book. And it was a book by a guy named John Taylor Gatto. John Taylor Gatto was a 30-year veteran of the, uh, of the school system in New York, and he talks about the underground history of American education. And this just, I mean, I could not put this book down. It's not a small book, but I had some time, and so I poured through this book, and the the gist of it was the Prussian empire during the 1700s was trying to create a monolithic, you know, class where they had all the people who work in their machine, in their machines in their uh, factories. And then when the time came to mobilize and you had to send guys off to die for their country, there was this patriotism that was unquestionable, that was, you know, very one minded. And you went and you did whatever the nation needed you to do in the name of, you know, the motherland or the fatherland and freedom and everything else. And when I saw that, and I, you know, obviously the details uh, provided in the book, I was just like, this is incredible. And they got me. 
like because of what I had seen overseas, you know, we weren't there to promote freedom. We weren't there to do, you know, any type of, you know, like Al Qaeda didn't even exist in, in Iraq. It was, you know, it was made up by the, the, the Bush administration when Colin Powell went and before Congress and gave that fake testimony. And there's, you know, there's recordings of him talking about, you know, how he absolutely choked during that testimony. Um, and it was built on lies. And so when I kind of figured out, you know, what had happened and how I got there and seen what I had seen, and especially in the battle in Najaf, which the battle in Najaf, I think is probably key to this point is when we were in Najaf and we were about to, uh, level this place called the Imam Ali shrine, it was the second holiest site in all of Islam. Um, uh, and honestly, we thought we were there to help the Shiites, um, at the time. Unfortunately, we were fighting Muqtada al-Sadr's Mahdi militia, who was a Shiite cleric. And we were like, I don't know, you know, must be a bad Shiite or something like that who's betrayed his people. But turns out um, we had them surrounded in this Imam Ali shrine and Muqtada al-Sadr and the Grand Ayatollah Sistani, along with some D.C. power brokers, uh, made this peace deal without our knowing and we had to watch every one of those guys walk out of this Imam Ali shrine after Marines had been in battle and died and lost limbs and everything else. And I was just like, what are we doing here? Like, what, what is this? And that was kind of the thing that just planted the seed where I was like, I've got to get so down. So why to do you think you were there? Why do you think you're, you were there? If it was not to, to help or it was not in the name of freedom, what was it in the name of? Uh, it's what they call American interest, which is a really fancy way of saying the banks, the corporations, uh, and the elite politicians in terms of these guys making sure that they have all the money that they could ever need, uh, to live amazing lives. And that, that was it that, I mean, the, the name of the petrol dollar, um, which is obviously crashing before us now as bricks, you know, begins to stand up. You've got you've got these this cabal of people that is all it, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. And George Carlin said this beautifully. He said you don't need a conspiracy when you have overlapping interests. When you have overlapping interests of the military industrial complex, when you have overlapping interests of the banks, when you have th- that need the petrol dollar to back it up, and then you have the the politicians who are are funded by these giant organizations and money. It, it it makes perfect sense. And that's who we were there for. We were there for those people uh, and those industries and those banking cabals and in the elite power structure here in America. That's that's what it all boiled down to. Well, that's a little terrifying. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can't say that I've I've heard it put this quite this way before uh, before I've spoken to you. And so this is again, this is the way that that you see it. And you certainly had more exposure to it than I have. Um, before I let you go, then let, let me ask you about the fear uh, that I guess most of Washington D.C. feels toward Donald Trump, yeah. and it it almost it, from time to time it seems to me they're just afraid of an outsider who is powerful enough to turn the place upside down and expose a lot of this. But then again, there are other reasons to not like Donald Trump. What do you make of what's going on with him right now and how he fits into this whole big picture you're describing? I imagine this may be a first for a lot of people to hear. I I think Trump is part of it. I don't think you become a billionaire without 
being part of the system. And, and, and I will say that as a guy that looks at this fairly objectively, like Biden wasn't my guy. Trump was not my guy. I'm not saying that I don't enjoy Trump more than I enjoy Biden. Like I'm, I'm not. But like it's one of those things where I see Trump as a New York Democrat, like an old school New York Democrat, but still a New York Democrat, not somebody that's, you know, a, a, a you know, this new form of like liberal globalist that thinks that we have to do everything like the rest of the world. So um, I think Trump is one of those great distractions. And I, you know, as I see him, I, he was a guy that thankfully didn't get us into any more conflict, um, which I will give him great credit for in terms of trying to create peace with North Korea, uh, you know, trying to, you know, make trade relations a little bit better with China, but more or less de-escalating what was going on. So props to him on those things. However, what we're witnessing now is the meltdown of the banks. Right now, we've gone through, uh, you know, boom bust cycle after boom bust cycle starting in, you know, 2000 when, you know, you had the dot-com era meltdown, then you had the housing bubble burst. Uh, 2019 was actually the the next bubble that was about to pop and they blamed it on COVID. And now you've got the the you know, quantitative easing into infinity that's going on, and the dollar is no longer going to be the world reserve currency because the, of the BRICS organization, Brazil, Russia, China, India, Saudi Arabia, Iran, all these organizations that are out there saying, yeah, we're going to ditch the dollar. Um, I think this is the one of the great distractions from, from what is actually happening, and that is something that a lot more people should be absolutely, I don't want to say terrified, but prepared for, because this isn't going to be a boom bust cycle. We are talking about the dollar no longer becoming, you know, being the, the world reserve currency. If it's no longer the world reserve currency, then that means, excuse me, <clears throat> that the dollar just doesn't have any real value at all because it's backed by nothing. You know, we went off the gold standard in the early 1970s under, uh, under Nixon. And when we did that, it was basically a default for the United States. So what we're looking at in terms of think of Trump and this, you know, this establishment uh, going after him, I, I think it's one big distraction. Uh, we don't have any real justice for anybody that, you know, put up Strzok, Page, Mueller. We don't have any, any justice for those people. We didn't have any justice for the Clintons. We didn't have any, any recourse into Jeffrey Epstein and what happened um, with, you know, the, 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 the pedophilia ring. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, all those years ago that, you know, Alex Jones may have been right. But at the same time, you start looking at this, you know, this, this very ridiculous organization that is targeted and, and allowed, you know, what speech cannot go on, what speech can go on during on social media, YouTube, you, you name it. And you start to see that this giant cabal that is, you know, the, the banking cabal, the, the elite power structure and the corporations that we call zombie corporations that are tied to all this and propped up uh, by bailouts and everything else. We're starting to see through this facade and, I think Americans hopefully are smart enough not to fall for what I think they really want and what they really need is conflict. They need conflict in Ukraine. They want conflict, I think, with China. I think they want conflict with Russia. And I honestly, I think they want conflict here in the United States between us in, in terms of a, a violent um, type of uprising. And I hope Americans are just smart enough to stay peaceful enough to let this thing kind of implode and decentralize a little bit. Wow. So last thing, I promise, uh, although okay. I could talk to you for another hour, um, I, what, what do we do? 
I mean, if this is in fact happening with the banks and as you describe it and, and the U.S. dollar is, is going to become almost irrelevant, as you yeah. hint, what do we do? If people are listening to this right now and they're thinking, damn, this is dystopian. I don't you know. I, I, why, would, why should I wake up tomorrow? <laughs> what, what do we do? Okay. Um, and this might be another hour conversation. Um, that, and, and, and I, and I say this from a guy that I, I don't, I don't want to be right about any of this kind of stuff. It, it's not, I, I hope to be proved wrong at some point. Um, what you should be doing right now, I hope you are away from population centers, like high density population centers are, are going to be the worst hit. Um, if you've got a place you can get to, if you can raise chickens, um, and I mean this very seriously, um, if you can raise some chickens for you and your family to, to make sure that you've got a meal on the table, probably a really good thing. It's something to trade with and take care of your, your, your local uh, community, a very good thing to do. Um, the other thing that you should probably have on hand is some silver and some lead. I, some people say gold. I, I have this old saying, like, I think people get killed over gold. I think silver is tradable. Um, and then obviously some defense uh, in terms of, you know, if, if you know how to use weapons, um, you should probably make sure that those things are, are, are ready to go just in case. And I'm not saying that I want any of this. I, I, I want peace more than anything. I've seen enough blood in my life. The last thing that I will tell you in your audience, and this may be one of those things where you go, oh, this might be a complete departure. And it would have been a complete departure for me uh, 10 years ago. Learn Bitcoin, not crypto, Bitcoin. And I say this as a guy that studied economics for over 10 years now. Um, there's, a, there's a school that we use in America right now that is Keynesian, and it is built on debt and coercion and force and slavery. And then there is Austrian economics, which is built on savings and consent. Um, and, and most in freedom. Um, Bitcoin is a code that creates a very finite uh, currency that there will never be more than 21 million of. It is something that people cannot take through force and coercion. It, it, it is a new communications protocol that breeds consent between each other. And, you know, the, one of the things that I tell people is this is a code that is codified above because what it does is it creates a a barrier to where you have to love your fellow human being enough just to leave them alone that's it because you can't force and coerce them to depart with their bitcoin and and that's that's one of the i think one of the most brilliant things about what they did uh, if people don't know where bitcoin came from bitcoin came from the 2007 2008 meltdown when the banks bailed out all these organizations that were close uh to the government and close to the banks uh, the cypherpunks got together and said, we have to create a way that is digitally native, that this can never, ever happen again, where they can never steer, steal our wealth ever again. Um, <clears throat> what you're seeing right now. And when that happened, um, they created this finite supply of 21 million and there's a hundred million Satoshis for every 21 million. But when you look at what Bitcoin is in terms of the first digitally native scarce um, item that's ever been created. It is it is now decoupled from the S&P. It is decoupled from the stock market. It is decoupled from the dollar. And as the dollar and banks and the markets, whether they're foreign exchanges or you know the domestic exchanges, what you're seeing is a lot of these crash and burn because they're built on fiat money, which is backed by nothing. Uh, and it's going to crash even harder now that it's not going to be pegged to the, the petrodollar. So if there's something that you need to learn, and I say learn it because with 
you know, with knowledge comes conviction. You don't care what the price is on any given day. 10 years from now, you could be looking at a single Bitcoin that is worth one to two million dollars. And that is a preservation of wealth in a deflationary currency that the banks, the political elite and the zombie corporations don't want you to have any part of. Wow. <laughs> Shane, we got to have you back. I got to talk to you more. I, I, I want to get more into this Bitcoin stuff with you. I, I just you you've got some really interesting takes, but you seem really smart. <laughs> you seem really well educated on this stuff. So I and experienced, obviously, I thank you for your service. Uh, totally. Um, it seems to have really informed who you are today. So it's a fascinating discussion and we'll continue it another time, I hope. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for having me on rescheduling. I mean, to, to your audience, um, Michelle, uh, you, she was trying to have me on last week and I got so sick. And so thank you for, for no worries at all. No worries. We're going to have him back if for people who are interested. And also he's got his own podcast. Where can they find it? Yeah, it's a radical pod. It's uh, the radical podcast uh, and all my links on there for uh, brave the post traumatic stress mission and uh, my my new venture. Uh, the Bitcoin Maximalist, where I actually teach people Bitcoin, uh, how to uh, take exchange uh, dollars for it and then get it into cold storage. Uh, you can find all of that there and uh, would, would love to join you again sometime. Michelle. I would love to do it. I, I th and we'll, we'll have to. We just have to. All right, Shane, thank you again. And you can check out his, his podcast. We've got all the stuff there graphically for you to see. And um, so thanks. We'll talk to him again. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Sideline Sanity. As always, be brave please, and do good. Thanks for listening. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.